Long-standing pillars of the Arab order, authoritarian bargains, and hydrocarbon rents are collapsing as political institutions struggle with the rising demands of growing populations. Pervasive socioeconomic deficiencies, polarization, and repression have resulted, leading to unprecedented state disintegration, particularly in Iraq. Libya, Syria, and Yemen. These forces are in turn fueling massive human displacement and geopolitical power plays. If any semblance of order is to return after the conflicts subside, citizens and states must forge new social contracts that establish accountability and energize systemic political and economic reform. The roots of a regional collapse. Societies worldwide are grappling with technological, economic, and cultural transformations. However, the inherent pressures have been particularly combustible in the Arab world, given institutional deficiencies and the proliferation of conflict, sectarianism, and radicalization. There is a crisis of trust between governments and citizens. Authoritarian bargains, whereby regimes trade social services and government jobs for citizen quiescence, have fractured. These social contracts began eroding as inflated budgets and bloated bureaucracies could no longer keep up with population growth. States have lost control of large swaths of territory to non-state actors, including the self-proclaimed Islamic State. Former regional powerhouses such as Egypt and Iraq are now severely constrained by domestic weaknesses. Powerful states are increasingly interfering in the affairs of weaker ones, heightening internal and regional conflict. Alongside their oil exporting neighbors, oil importing Arab countries, long dependent on remittances, external assistance, and investment, will face increased fiscal pressures due to the collapse in oil prices. The dependence on oil revenues has impeded economic and political development in many states, leaving them unprepared for the resulting turbulence. Caught between retrenchment and change, with few exceptions, Arab regimes are increasingly using means of coercion to reassert control. However, citizens will not abandon their demands for greater accountability, transparency, and political agency as social welfare declines, making increased tensions between citizens and states likely. Political and economic control is integrally linked across the Arab world, resulting in pervasive cronyism and corruption. Building the foundation for sustainable private sector-led economic growth requires breaking this linkage. Continued chaos in the Middle East might seem inevitable, but other regions have experienced. 
similar collapses, and managed to step back from the precipice. Yet, until Arab societies develop new social contracts based on more sustainable political and socio-economic models, efforts to do so in the Middle East are likely to fail. Mina, a 24-year-old teacher from Syria, is caught between her past, an unfamiliar European present, and an uncertain future. She enjoyed her life in Homs, where she worked at an institute for autistic children, while continuing her studies. She was not politically active, but as the peaceful anti-government protests that began in 2011 gave way to civil war. She struggled to remain neutral. In October 2015, she fled her home and country. Today, Mina lives in a refugee camp in Berlin. Although she has found work at a local preschool, she says, I'm also so incredibly tired by the idea that I have to start my life over. She worries about the psychological trauma that those in Syria have endured. They merely exist. They eat, drink, and sleep. Nonetheless, she hopes to further her pedagogical skills while in Germany so she can help to rebuild Syria when she finally fulfills her dream of returning home. Like Mina, many people across the Arab world have entered a period of profound dislocation. The old regional order has come undone and it is unclear what will replace it. Arab regimes are facing a perfect storm of fraying citizen-state relations, internal and regional conflicts, a collapse in oil revenues, rising temperatures, and the prospect of severe water shortages, and a breakdown in the shared sense of purpose among the region's authoritarian leadership. It is a storm that the regimes, with a few notable exceptions, have been unprepared to face. The result is the most destructive period in the Middle East since the establishment of modern Arab states after World War I. For decades, Arab regimes offered social services, subsidies, and government employment in return for little or no citizen participation in decision-making. Essentially, social contracts based on authoritarian bargains. While there were significant differences between how Arab states managed their internal affairs in terms of both their methods of control and use of repression, virtually all were governed by autocratic regimes. They built powerful security and intelligence apparatuses and expended enormous energy to carefully stage manage their political legitimacy, a difficult challenge in Arab republics given their antipathy toward democratic institutions. As economic and political power became increasingly linked in many Arab states, powerful patronage networks developed. The Arab-Israeli conflict and Cold War were further impediments to and excuses for lack of institutional development. The regime's emphasis on tools of co-optation and coercion 
led to the creation of cultures of dependency and severely hampered the development of institutions that might have promoted inclusive governance. More perniciously, the inherently corrupt and repressive predatory systems that emerged in many countries actively resisted efforts to reform, depriving them of tools to face new political and economic challenges. A powerful mix of local and global forces was also slowly brewing. A youth bulge across the Arab world, a massive spike in terrorism and religious extremism in the aftermath of the 2003 US invasion of Iraq and the ongoing Syrian civil war, accelerating internal economic competition and transformative information technology. There is no political or cultural roadmap for socioeconomic disruptions of this magnitude. If relatively resilient political institutions, such as in North America and Europe, struggle to adapt to these seismic changes, it was perhaps not surprising that stagnant Arab regimes were caught unprepared when the uprisings began in 2011. At its core, then, the collapse of the regional order is crisis of trust between governments and citizens. In 2011, it became clear that the so-called social contracts were one-sided, as citizens across the region openly rejected the underpinnings of the authoritarian bargains. After Tunisian President Zine el-Abidine Ben Ali's sudden and unexpected exile, Regimes resorted to a familiar playbook to contain the repercussions of what had happened in Tunisia. They responded by using a combination of social welfare and repressive policies with varying degrees of brutality and sophistication. As a result, some of the region's most repressive states, Iraq, Libya, Syria, and Yemen, began fragmenting along ethnic, ideological, sectarian, and tribal lines, while another half-dozen or more began experiencing significant domestic political unrest. The most extreme manifestation is Syria, whose citizens are now trapped between a regime willing to reduce its cities to rubble and the genocidal violence of the self-proclaimed Islamic State. External pressures have exacerbated state crises. Although oil prices stabilized after losing 70% of their value, they are expected to remain low for the foreseeable future, creating monumental fiscal challenges for the Arab world. For all but the region's wealthiest countries, the rentier economic system, in which rents derived from the sale of oil-financed vast national systems of patronage and sustenance will become increasingly unsustainable over time. Even the region's resource-poor countries will be affected, since most Arab countries became in some way dependent upon the region's oil revenues. Oil countries have little hope of developing prosperous societies without new political and economic models. As citizens are asked 
to sacrifice long-standing social welfare benefits in the name of fiscal austerity, their acceptance of the old systems of top-down rule will wither. They will demand accountability, justice, and a greater say in national affairs in return. For leaders long accustomed to absolute power, this is a dangerous trap, largely of their own making. They would be right in believing that the path of political and economic reform would likely lead to a loss in power. Thus, with a few exceptions, regimes continue to cling to an untenable status quo, even at the risk of catastrophe. With the old order in disarray, there is no clarity about where the region is heading. Writing from a prison cell in fascist Italy during the 1930s, the Marxist philosopher Antonio Gramsci observed, the crisis consists precisely in the fact that the old is dying and the new cannot be born. In this interregnum, a great variety of morbid symptoms appear. This is the reality faced by today's Middle East, a region that remains critical to global peace and security. This report attempts to explore the underlying causes of the region's turbulence. It examines the fundamental national and transnational trends playing out in the region's human, political, and geopolitical landscapes, both horizontally and vertically, that is, the interrelationships between these trends, both within countries and across them. Specifically, the analysis looks at the human landscape, the changing experiences of Arab citizens amid demographic pressures, human migration, political polarization, and social activism. The political landscape, the crisis of governance across the region, the stresses upon the rentier systems, and the influence of the security sector and media on Arab politics. The geopolitical landscape, the collapsing regional order in the context of myriad internal and interstate conflicts, the implications of lower oil prices, and the long-term impacts of climate change and water scarcity. The findings constitute a framework for understanding how the breakdowns within each landscape interact with each other and how various countries might begin to address them. To help illustrate how these breakdowns and trends are playing out in different settings, eight case studies are presented. Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, Libya, Palestine, Saudi Arabia, Syria, and Tunisia. Although other countries could have been chosen, these bellwethers highlight the main trends in the Arab world, as well as the disparate manner in which governments are facing them. Understanding their experiences is vital to understanding what lies on the Arab horizon. The Human Landscape The collapse of the regional order and the fraying of social contracts in many Arab countries have important implications for how Arab citizens relate to their governments and to each other. Although societies worldwide are struggling to adapt to technological and cultural transformations, 
These social pressures provide a particularly combustible mix in the Middle East. Given the region's political and economic challenges and the proliferation of conflict, sectarianism, and radicalization, complex social transformations are occurring at the individual level within and across four domains demography and human development, migration, polarization, and social activism. Demography and human development. The future stability and prosperity of the Arab countries depends on accelerated human development, as reliance on hydrocarbon resources has become untenable due to growing populations and changing world energy markets. While Arab countries have made strides in literacy and higher education for women, other areas of human development have lagged, inhibiting the needed shift. From public sector led growth to private sector led growth. One major obstacle relates to perception and attitudes. As youth unemployment and restiveness have risen, some governments have tended to treat their younger citizens more as security threats than economic assets, inhibiting their activities in the public realm. These attitudes are ultimately denying the region the potential demographic dividend. Accelerated economic growth as a result of an expansion of the working age population that has given East Asia and other regions economic boosts in the past. In 2002, the release of the first of a series of Arab human development reports sent shockwaves throughout the region. Produced by a prominent group of independent Arab scholars and researchers, these reports were painfully honest examinations of the state of human development in Arab countries. The 2002 report concluded that the Arab world suffered from profound deficits in political freedoms, education, and women's empowerment. Yet, nearly 15 years later, all three challenges remain and new challenges have emerged. The AHDRs define freedom as participatory governance. Since 2002, only one Arab country, Tunisia, has crossed over into the category of free, according to Freedom House ratings. There are only two countries, Lebanon and Morocco, that are deemed partly free. The rest are all classified as not free. In recent decades, Arab countries have made strides in school enrollment and literacy, but the quality of education, meaning the provision of skills needed for employment, technology training, and academic and scientific research, remains a major challenge. A disparity has emerged in this regard between the wealthier and poorer Arab countries. In the World Economic Forum's 2014 2015 Global Competitiveness Index, the United Arab Emirates ranked number 12 among the 144 countries surveyed for quality of higher education, whereas Egypt, Libya, and Yemen remained at 119, 126. And 142, respectively. 
Regarding women's empowerment, female literacy in school and university enrollment have also progressed since 2002. The adult female literacy rate across the Arab world increased from an estimated 41% in 1990 to 69% in 2010. In most Arab countries, women outnumber men in universities. And yet, women's participation in the workforce in the Middle East and North Africa continues to be the lowest of any region, at just 22% compared to the global average of 50%. Political participation, similarly, is lower in Arab countries than in most other regions, according to UN data tracking percentages of women ministers and parliamentarians. Moreover, human development challenges, particularly unemployment, have intensified with population growth. The population growth rate in the Middle East and North Africa is second only to the rate in Sub-Saharan Africa. Although the average fertility rate among Arab countries has dropped from 5.2 children per woman in 1990 to 3.4 in 2014, the fastest decline of any region, it is still well above the replacement rate of 2.1, and several countries, notably Iraq, Palestine, Sudan, and Yemen, average more than four children per female. Egypt, the region's most populous country, has experienced rapid population growth. The country's population has risen from 68 million in 2000 to 92 million in 2015, while fertility rates, which had declined dramatically in recent decades, have again moved upward from three children per female in 2007 to 3.3 in 2014. As a consequence of historically high fertility rates, Arab countries have experienced a youth bulge, a, large, a larger proportion of young adults compared to other age groups. Figure 1, representing age and sex distribution in the 22 member states of the Arab League, shows a classic youth bulge in contrast to Figure 2, which shows the contracting population of European Union member states. The Middle East and North Africa's disproportionate population of adolescents and young adults between the ages of 15 and 35 means the number of people demanding work and requiring higher education or vocational training is unusually large. Youth bulges have been historically associated with civil conflicts, thus compounding the need for countries with youth bulges to achieve rapid economic growth, to keep pace with the abundance of young workers. When the aspirations of youths are stimmied, countries tend to be unstable. In the Arab world, which has long had the highest youth unemployment rate in the world, frustration levels are high. The generation gap also has social and political consequences. While several Arab countries have median ages under 21, political and economic power is firmly concentrated among the older generation. 
Some Arab countries, such as Tunisia, are gradually moving past their youth bulges, with fertility rates beginning to fall. The populations of other Arab countries are continuing to grow at rapid rates, and in populous places such as Egypt, another even larger youth bulge is expected within the coming 10 to 15 years. These population pressures add urgency to the need for Arab states to address human development gaps, dismantle cronyism, and match a trained labor force with private sector employment opportunities. Experience in other contexts has shown that with wise investments and policy choices, especially in education, these youth bulges can become development boons. If a shift toward greater human development does not take place in the Arab countries, demographic trends are likely to continue to be a source of problems rather than prosperity for years to come. Human migration. Demographic and human development challenges have been further compounded by massive population movements triggered by the post 2011 region wide conflicts. Some countries, particularly Iraq and Syria, have had large numbers of citizens flee the horrors of conflict to seek safe haven in neighboring countries or further afield in Europe. Consequently, They are experiencing severe human development deficits, as well as a dramatic reduction in the number and range of professionals remaining, such as medical and engineering staff. Other countries, like Lebanon and Jordan, that have received an influx of migrants, are experiencing a severe strain on their education, welfare, and security systems. Further, with the social makeup of countries rapidly changing, political systems based on identity politics are becoming increasingly complex. It is difficult to overstate the magnitude of the catastrophe. In 2015, it was estimated that more than 143 million Arabs are living in countries experiencing war or occupation, and around 17 million. Have been forcibly displaced from their homes. Further, while Arabs constitute only 5% of the world's population, they account for more than 50% of its refugees. With more than 4.8 million people forced to flee the country and nearly 6.6 million displaced internally, one in five refugees globally is Syrian. Iraq, which has suffered through waves of displacement dating back to the 1980s, has also witnessed considerable internal displacement due to ongoing conflict, with more than 3.3 million people fleeing territories held by the Islamic State. People in Libya, Sudan, and Yemen are all facing forced displacement as well. Additionally, the Arab world has hosted significant numbers of Palestinian refugees, the oldest and largest refugee population in the world, numbering more than 5 million people, from the time of the Arab Israeli Wars of 1948 and 1967. The region's conflicts and the resulting wide scale population movements have resulted in major social changes 
and refugee populations risk becoming trapped in intergenerational cycles of poverty. Populations that have fled violence, joined in the fighting, or become refugees include many of those best positioned to contribute to post-war reconstruction, mainly the youth and the middle class. A recent study, for example, found that 86% of Syrians who fled to Greece between April and September 2015 have secondary or university education. Further, more than 2.8 million Syrian children are not in school, which could have long-term consequences. The overall poverty rate in Syria was estimated to be 83% in 2014, with 35% living in abject poverty, unable to meet basic food needs for their households. Elsewhere, almost 11 million people in Yemen are severely food insecure. In Iraq and Libya, the United States, the United Nations estimates the number of individuals in need of some form of food assistance to be 2.4 million and 210,000, respectively. Jordan and Lebanon host the largest number of refugees in the Arab world, with roughly 655,000 registered Syrian refugees in Jordan and 1.1 million in Lebanon in addition to the long-standing Palestinian refugee communities of roughly 2.1 million and 450,000 registered refugees, respectively. This large population influx is having a significant impact on both countries' societies and security structures, and threatens to undermine existing social contracts. The settlement of large numbers of refugees in Jordan's and Lebanon's most impoverished areas has induced large-scale urbanization in places lacking the requisite infrastructure. For instance, as of November 2016, the Mafraq and Zatari camps in Jordan host 158,683 Syrian refugees, or roughly 24% of all those registered in the country. Welfare systems that have exhibited remarkable resilience and generosity in hosting refugees have also come under immense pressure. Both Jordan and Lebanon have seen a decline in crucial social services, such as education and health, a depression in wages, an expansion in the informal sector, and youth unemployment, and a rise in child labor. In Lebanon, for example, 10% of Syrian refugee children are working, including 18% of refugee children in the Bekaa Valley. Furthermore, 26% of Syrian refugee children are estimated to have been withdrawn from school. The refugee crises have been exacerbated by identity politics, changing the demographic makeup of many areas and greatly complicating post-war reconciliation efforts. For example, Mosul in Iraq has been emptied of its Christians for the first time in centuries, but Christians fared better than the Yazidis, Shabaks, Mandaeans, Shia, and Turkomans, many of whom were hunted down by the Islamic State and killed. 
Moreover, population transfers are no longer just the byproducts of political power struggles and war. They have also become principal elements of local peace agreements in certain places. For example, in Syria, the accords to end the sieges of Zabadani in 2015 and Daraya in 2016 included population transfers. This Arab demographic unraveling has not only weakened states and societies, but also undermined, perhaps irreparably, cultural values of coexistence and pluralism. The creation of ethnic or sectarian entities could well further sow the seeds of conflict for decades to come, creating new claims for rights of return. Finally, the emergence of new actors and economies in conflict zones, which also feed off forced migration, will affect prospects for peace. The smuggling of refugees, for instance, has become a large-scale industry for organized criminals in Europe, with estimated annual revenues of 5 to 6 billion. A large conflict-related economy in Syria has emerged, involving the sale of weapons, the smuggling of food and essential products, and other criminal activities. An estimated 17% of Syria's active population is involved in the conflict-related economy, creating a new stratum that has grown wealthy from the war. Many of these actors, along with a large number of militias that have been formed during the conflict, could act as spoilers of any prospective peace settlement. Similar trends are also apparent to a lesser extent in Iraq, Libya, and Yemen, and are having an impact on neighboring countries. Tunisia's border towns, for example, have become closely implicated in Libya's war-related economy. With conflicts not abating, the flow of displaced populations both within and outside Arab countries is likely to continue. This expansion will bring about more dramatic transformations in the region's social fabric and economic outlook. The prospect for the return of this massive number of refugees will, to a large extent, be contingent upon the shape of the peace settlements that end the current conflicts and their ability to offer safety and security to those who managed to escape their horrors. The availability of a viable economic and service-oriented infrastructure the status of reconstruction and the prospects for participation in the governance of their own affairs will also play a vital role in facilitating the safe return of refugees to their homes. Polarization. The changing social makeup of populations is contributing to the rise in and complexity of social polarization. While polarization seems to be a global phenomenon, Arguably, no region has been divided, as divided as the Middle East since 2011. Though the specifics vary from country to country, spaces for moderate voices have generally receded. Authoritarian practices of ruling regimes, their systems of patronage and co-optation, the general weakness of opposition currents and civil society organizations, and the ideologically 
divided nature of public spaces have all enabled Arab rulers to close the public space and sideline voices of dissent. As a result, political actors and citizens alike are left with little scope for compromise and forced to choose between supporting or opposing a government or, more dangerously, adopting or rejecting a particular confessional, ethnic, or tribal identity. Polarization in Arab societies can be divided into two broad categories. The first is ideological, unfolding between secular and religious forces, and exemplified by the differing post-2011 experiences of Egypt and Tunisia. In Egypt, the military autocracy has attempted to persuade the public to accept the loss of pluralist politics and personal freedoms in exchange for stability and security. But repressive measures, such as wide-scale human rights abuses, the passing of undemocratically spirited laws, and the unchecked prerogatives of military and security institutions have exacerbated long-standing social divisions and induced more violence. In contrast, though Tunisia's popular uprisings has yet to tr fully translate into public trust in political institutions, the country has had significant success in creating the framework for a new constitutional order that both integrates secular and religious forces and provides citizens access to a vibrant public space where economic grievances, social tensions, identity issues, and policy objectives can be deliberated freely. It remains to be seen whether the rare spirit of compromise that Tunisia's political elite demonstrated during its post-2011 transition can be further institutionalized, or whether the growing terrorist threat, political violence, and ideological demagoguery have injected long-term destructive factors into Tunisian politics. A second more virulent category is political polarization, which has accompanied political turbulence in ethnically and religiously divided societies. A powerful political tool, polarization can provide scapegoats on whom to pin socioeconomic failings and against whom to mobilize core constituencies. In places such as Iraq and Syria, partisan rhetoric has sometimes been radicalized to the point of legitimizing political or sectarian violence, creating fertile ground for extremism and terrorism. The results have varied from an upsurge in communal tensions in Bahrain and Lebanon to civil wars and state collapse in Iraq and Syria. In Iraq, sectarian politics have resulted in civil strife and dysfunction in a social context conducive to violence and terrorism. The ongoing conflicts over economic resources and political representation between Kurdish, Shia, and Sunni communities have created safe havens for the Islamic State and led other social groups seeking to capitalize on sectarian division, such as the Popular Mobilization Forces, to adopt similar violent strategies. 
In Syria, the sectarian-based patronage system and the repressive nature of the Bashar al-Assad regime led to the almost complete loss of popular trust in state institutions and their neutrality. The notion of a Syrian national identity has collapsed along with modern conceptions of citizenship based on equal rights and entitlements for all Syrians. The destruction of the social fabric of the country and the apparent dismemberment of what was a unified Syrian state have created de facto sectarian fiefdoms in their wake. Bahrain is quieter today than it was in 2011, when tens of thousands of protesters, a significant number in a country of 1.3 million people, took to the streets in protest before being repressed by the security forces, with strong support from Saudi Arabia and other Gulf nations. But the rift between the disenfranchised Shia majority and the ruling Sunni minority is growing, and Bahrain's long-term stability seems somewhat in doubt. In Lebanon, major sectarian groups, or more specifically, their political representatives, are locked in a permanent conflict over the distribution of limited resources and competing regional affiliations. The resulting polarization has weakened state institutions, created political paralysis, and widened the rift between the Lebanese population and the political class governing it. With few venues for consensual political expression, Polarized systems allow rejectionist voices to dominate, and extreme political discourse becomes a potential gateway to radicalization or religious extremism. Unless democratic transitions are once again seen as viable, and new social contracts between ruling establishments and citizens are developed to overcome economic grievances and governance deficits, Extremism and terrorism may become more appealing for underprivileged and marginalized groups. Case study, Palestine, divided at falls. A decade of social and political polarization in Palestine has led to a steady erosion of governing institutions and the undermining of national aspirations. The Oslo process of negotiations between Israel and the Palestinian Liberation Organization is now widely seen as having ended. The Palestinian Authority, formed in 1994 as a five-year interim body with administrative control and a role in internal security over Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, is now 17 years overdue and bereft of purpose. Instead of evolving into statehood, Palestinian political conditions have stagnated. The PA struggles to provide public services to Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. Security coordination between the PA and Israel in the West Bank remains robust, but is deeply resented. A split between the Fatah-dominated PA in the West Bank and the Hamas-dominated government in Gaza robs the Palestinians of unified leadership 
The controls imposed by Israel over movement into and within the West Bank continues to hamper economic development and an administrative control. And Israel and Egypt continue to enforce harsh and almost total restrictions on the movement of goods and people, respectively, in and out of Gaza. However, the stagnation amid repeated attempts by the United States to restart what seems to be a moribund negotiation track has masked a slow political deterioration in a highly polarized society. While Palestinians have avoided the collapse of central political authority, as had occurred in Syria and Yemen, Palestinian national aspirations have been seriously undermined, and the potential for genuine statehood seems to be receding. Political polarization in Palestinian society cuts across several dimensions. The chasm between political entities in Gaza and the West Bank has grown deep. Despite repeated perfunctory negotiations to reunify Palestinian, Palestine's two halves, neither the Hamas leadership in Gaza nor the Fatah leadership in Ramallah has shown sincere interest in reconciliation. Instead, each faction uses disunity as propaganda to discredit its rival and shore up its own base. But just as significant, Israel's tight closure of Gaza, which began in 2001 during the Al-Asqa Intifada, will soon be as old as half of the territory's residents, meaning that the human linkages between Gaza and the West Bank have atrophied. Geographic dislocations in Palestinian society are no less profound. Palestinians are divided between those who reside in Jerusalem and are governed by Israel, generally with residency rights but not citizenship. Those in pre-1967 Israel, increasingly alienated citizens of a Jewish state, and those in the diaspora whose treatment by Arab governments often ranges from neglect to suspicion. These political divisions are entrenched, leading to different outlooks and interests. Social and economic contacts among these disparate populations have become more attenuated as each population seeks to cope with its own distinct burdens. Meanwhile, Palestinian statehood is not only receding in an institutional sense, it is also receding from the Palestinian political agenda. The generation that built a set of national institutions, the PLO, the PA, political movements, unions, and bureaucracies, is exiting the scene. Its political vision no longer seems either viable or relevant to younger Palestinians, who have little faith that a comprehensive settlement with Israel is possible. More than two-fifths of Palestinians were born under the Al-Aqsa Intifada in 2000 
and another one-fifth were born too recently to have memories before that date. The political attitudes of the younger generation show marked differences from its older peers, while nearly one in three Palestinian youths supporting the dissolution of the PA, and seven in ten believing that an armed intifada would help Palestinians achieve national rights. Palestinian polarization is as much effect and cause. External security and significant aspects of the West Bank's internal security have remained in Israeli hands. And the political institutions that were created in the 1990s to form the democratic foundations for a sovereign Palestinian state have unmistakably collapsed, leaving Palestinian factions to grasp what they can control rather than deal with each other. Full elections in the PA for president and parliament have only been held in 1996 and then 2005 for president and 2006 for parliament. New national elections are unlikely to be held anytime soon. The electoral mandate of Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas ended eight years ago and, given his inability to counter the expansion of Israeli settlement construction in the West Bank, his political legitimacy and personal popularity has eroded unambiguously. Were the presidency to become vacant, it would likely be filled through an ad hoc procedure that weakens the new occupant's legitimacy, removing even the semblance of national unity. The legislative process has been similarly improvised, with decrees issued in the West Bank by Abbas following opaque procedures, and in Gaza by a defunct parliament bereft of initiative or popular support. Courts display clear indications of political subservience to the executive in both Palestinian territories. Municipal Elections, which were scheduled for October 8, 2016, have been postponed indefinitely because feuding court systems in the West Bank and Gaza have made coordination impossible. The PLO, which has continued to represent Palestinians and Palestinian interests throughout the world, has faced institutional decay, becoming a set of bodies run out of Abbas's office since the PA president is also chair of the PLO executive community. Not surprisingly, human rights and political and civil freedoms have deteriorated sharply under such conditions. How does such a dysfunctional and divided political system continue? Although Palestine lacks the significant hydrocarbon assets of many Arab states, the Palestinian political economy exhibits distinctive symptoms of rentierism, further contributing to economic polarization. Unfortunately, the international donor community has inadvertently exacerbated these tendencies at virtually every step in the two-decade-old Oslo process. Since its establishment, the PA has received $17 billion in foreign assistance. More subtly, the Paris Protocol on Economic Relations 
signed in 1994, created a series of monopolies over imports to the PA that generated large rents, as well as opportunities for corruption. Since the division of Palestine, Israel's severe strictures have hollowed out the Gazan economy. 80% of the population is at least partially dependent on assistance, and an estimated 41% of men and 61% of women are unemployed. In the West Bank, the public payroll is 1.9 billion, nearly 50% of government expenditures. Clearly, rentierism is not simply a condition of the region's wealthier states. Exhibiting many of the same unfortunate tendencies as other Arab states, the Palestinian political system has thus lost unity and purpose, and is beginning to lose international support. Although Palestine has not been able to establish statehood in anything more than name, Palestinian nationalism has displayed considerable cultural and ideological resilience in light of the many setbacks and obstacles that have confronted it. It is a resilience that is likely to be further tested in the years to come. Tunisia's culture of cooperation and compromise. Raked Ganouchi. Tunisia, which sparked the Arab Spring, remains one of the few Arab countries still standing in the struggle against tyranny and repression in the Middle East and North Africa. That is in no small part due to a culture of cooperation and compromise between Islamist and secularist parties, which has been consciously and assiduously nurtured over the past several years and indeed decades. The difficult journey from dictatorship toward democracy could not have been begun in Tunisia without cross-party partnerships. In its transition, Tunisia was able to overcome the dangers of ideological polarization and the monopolization of the process by one side or the other. The country did this by building coalitions of different parties with intellectually diverse outlooks and cultivating a shared commitment to democracy, pluralism, human rights, and the fulfillment of the key demands of the revolution. Long before the results of Tunisia's first free and fair elections in October 2011, my party, Enhada, and a number of others were already convinced that a coalition government was needed to build the foundations of a democratic Tunisia. We needed to forge a new democratic political culture based on respect and coexistence between parties and, in particular, between the two principal intellectual trends in Tunisian society, moderate secularists and moderate Muslim Democrats. These have long been the two wings of the country's national movement and are both critical to the democratic project. Over a decade ago, Tunisian opposition parties and activists launched an initiative that brought together political activists from various parties, journalists, human rights campaigners, and independents into a body that came to be known as the 18 October Committee. The initiative began as a joint hunger strike in 2005 
to draw attention to violations of human rights and the plight of political prisoners. It then turned into a forum for dialogue between opposition actors to develop a shared vision for a new democratic political system in Tunisia. Through long, detailed, and deep discussions, the committee produced joint position papers on the fundamental principles of a new political system, including mechanisms for the peaceful alternation of power, equality between men and women, freedom of belief and thought, and the relationship between religion and the state. This process was not an easy one. It was attacked by those who opposed dialogue between secularists and Islamists. Participants faced intense intimidation and personal attacks from the Ben Ali regime, which was desperate to prevent any rapprochement between the opposition groups. Arab opposition parties have far too often become embroiled in internecine battles rather than focusing on the real culprit, dictatorial and unjust regimes. By allowing themselves to be co-opted by those in power in the hope of eradicating their ideological rivals, opposition parties have at times played into the hands of dictators who have skillfully manipulated social and ideological divisions to their own benefit, using one ideological camp against another before turning against both. Tunisia's democratic transition has managed to avoid such forms of exclusionary and maximalist politics by building partnerships between parties of different intellectual backgrounds. The first coalition government, 2011 to 2014, contained the Enada party and two center-left secular parties, Atakatol and the Congress for the Republic Party. And this proved to be a pioneering model of coexistence between secularists and Islamists. The current coalition government contains five parties, including secularists, leftists, trade unionists, center-right figures, and Muslim Democrats. Making such partnerships work requires a principled commitment to pluralism, and a willingness to build consensus through dialogue and compromise. Only by abandoning all exclusionary attitudes toward one's political adversaries can we build stable, inclusive democracies that reflect the will of the people and abandon polarization, the eradication of dissent, and dictatorship in favor of healthy political competition, pluralism, and cooperation. A Technology-Driven Arab Social Contract by Fadi Gandur. One of the Arab world's most critical but least discussed transformations is the digital disruption. The onset of digitization and digital technology has prompted fundamental changes in the way Arabs connect, voice their opinions, learn, seek entertainment, consume goods and services, and conduct business. The region's transforming digital economy will reshape the future of work and create types of jobs that do not exist today. While this change is more apparent in some industries than others, 
Digital disruption is everywhere, affecting first and foremost younger populations by connecting them with each other and with the rest of the world in unprecedented ways. The Middle East has one of the fastest rates of adopting digital technology in the world. The constant double-digit growth of e-commerce saw it develop into a $5 billion industry in 2015. Arabs average more than five hours per day online, mostly on different social media platforms. As of 2014, Saudis were collectively viewing around 90 million YouTube videos daily, the highest per capita rate in the world. Mostly lacking real democratic outlets, Arabs share their political and socioeconomic opinions on social media, as evidenced by the 17 million tweets per day originating from the Arab world, also as of 2014. Saudis, once again, top the world with a Twitter penetration rate of 33%. These new realities require that governments, businesses, and societies redefine their relationships with citizens. In a recent regional survey, 68% of respondents said the internet and social media have increased their political influence, while 70% were comfortable voicing political opinions on Facebook. The region's estimated Facebook user base of 114 million people as of November 2015 represents a sizable constituency with which governments must engage and a potentially powerful platform for direct access and immediate engagement with citizens. Similarly, the rapid encroachment of technology and technology-enabled businesses into facets of the economy that, until now, has been immune to change, will cause economic displacement. For example, Karim, a successful regional competitor of Uber, is disrupting traditional taxi monopolies while allowing tens of thousands of unemployed and underemployed people to participate in a once-protected market. Jamalon, the region's largest online bookstore, is revolutionizing publishing by offering on-demand printing, opening doors to a new generation of authors and publishers. The emergence of technology-enabled financial businesses, or fintech, will potentially bring financial inclusion to the 86% of adults in the Middle East and North Africa that lacks that lack accounts at financial institutions. By giving citizens and small business owners access to credit markets from which they had been previously shut out, platforms such as Liwa and Beehive are empowering individuals, helping businesses grow, and creating jobs. Instagram has enabled countless female Arab entrepreneurs to launch online stores with nothing more than smartphones. The region is already witnessing the pioneers of an entrepreneurial movement building disruptive businesses and creating wealth outside the region's traditional spheres of the public sector, legacy, family-driven trading monopolies, and real estate. Sami Tukan and Hussam Khoury built Maktoub, which was later acquired by Yahoo, creating the region's first large-scale digital success story. Together with Ronaldo 
Muchawar, a native of Aleppo, Syria, they proceeded to build Souk.com, the region's largest and first billion-dollar e-commerce business. The digital economy is creating a new generation of entrepreneurs who are challenging tired traditional governance structures and creating new, flatter social systems where access to information is key. Regardless of the direction that the development of the digital economy takes, one thing is certain. Both governments and businesses need to be agile in their responses, or they will be left behind in the new digital world.